Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. Uh, salam and shukran. Can you, you can hear me okay with this microphone, eh? Uh, I'm going to tell you some stories about a long time studying parasites and trying to kill them, and how as I got older, I began to appreciate them. I apologize for my cold. I think I would rather have worms than viruses. C'est la vie. Um, it's important to recognize parasites are everywhere. More animals are parasites. That's the commonest lifestyle for an animal is to be a parasite. That means you live in or onside another animal to obtain an essential part of your life cycle, to complete that part. Um, if you have children, they can be considered parasites. <laughs> um, but we're talking about non-mammalian organisms here. Um, it's important to understand that any animal that lives in community evolved with parasites. So to be parasitized is the null state. As we evolved, as herd animals evolved, everyone is parasitized. We evolved our physiology in partnership with our parasites. However, because they have negative health consequences, uh, developed nations, wealthy nations, established ways to get rid of most parasites. So even though they were once globally spread, they are now more or less constrained to areas where the climate is appropriate. We have very few parasites in the Arctic, and land is very cheap there if you'd like to move. Um, but today, they tend to be diseases of resource-limited areas, and this is one of the, the problems that we face. We're all familiar with diseases like malaria or TB, which are basically tropical in nature, but I'm going to talk about diseases that fall into a different category, the neglected tropical diseases. And WHO has identified 17 of these. The ones in red, that's not me. Whew. Speaking of children and parasites, that's the dreaded sound of the self. Anyway, um, the ones in red are the worms. So you can see that a fairly large number of the neglected tropical diseases are actually helminth infections. And, and Helminths are everywhere. These are neglected tropical diseases because today they're found almost entirely, but not entirely, in tropical regions, mostly in impoverished nations or areas. And these are diseases that have largely escaped the attention of people who devise therapies. That's unfortunate. It has changed a bit. We'll talk about that. <clears throat> Numbers are almost irrelevant. When we talk about NTDs, if I fall off this, will someone pick me up? I saw Jim Bennett do that at a meeting once. Um, because we don't have adequate diagnostics. The, the only thing that's important about the numbers is it's a lot. The vast, you know, the vast majority of people living in impoverished areas are at risk of or possess parasites, often polyparasitized, so multiple species in the same person. This is rather typical. 
The numbers, again, are, are not meant to be um, something to hang your hat on, as we would say. They're indications that these are infections of enormous scope. And Ascaris is a very large worm, like this big, that lives in the intestinal tract. Trichuris is a whipworm. It lives in the lower intestinal tract. Hookworms. Uh, one of the exceptions to the tropical parasites is Enerobius vermicularis, the pinworm, which we have outbreaks in Montreal from time to time, and probably a number of you have experienced symptoms. Um, schistosomes, the number may be as high as 800 million as our detection methods get more sensitive. So the burden is staggering, but people that have these diseases don't have money to pay for cures. This is one of the problems. Helmet infections rarely kill people directly, but they cause chronic morbidity. They cause all kinds of problems with development, with loss of productivity, and they contribute to this cycle of poverty because poor nutrition, um, poor health in general, caused potentially by helmet infections leads to other diseases leads to lack of productivity. I often tell my students in Canada, <clears throat> what's the unit of productivity on a farm in North America? It's a tractor. What's the unit of productivity in Sub-Saharan Africa? It's a person. And I joke with my students, many of whom drink alcohol, if you were hungover, could you drive a tractor? Yeah, they're air-conditioned, they have internet, I don't know all this. But could you hoe a field? No. So when you're sick, you produce less. When you produce less, your nutrition goes down. When you have parasitic infections, it contributes to a long-standing cycle of poverty. It's important to recognize that we have eliminated these infections in many parts of the world. Here's a, an iconic photograph of two cousins. The one on your right had hookworms. The one on your left did not. And um, they're the same age. So extensive hookworm infections have big effects on development. These were eliminated through primarily what's known as WASH clean water, sanitation, and hygiene. In the US, this happened in the early parts of the 1900s, was one of the big programs of the Rockefeller Foundation was to change the apple. In the US, there's a old caricature of Southerners as, I have to be very careful, lazy, stupid, other things. Sorry, Sparky. Um, Sparky's from Mississippi, but he's an exception to the rule. Um, <clears throat> it turns out that those are symptoms of hookworms. And once those were eradicated, the economic potential of the southern U.S. really bloomed. Getting rid of parasites is important, but we didn't do this with drugs. I just want that to be clear for now. Have we been able to build on that? A big issue for sanitation, which is essential, is it costs money. And it's one thing to invest. A wealthy country can go build a sanitation plant in a poor country, but it can't sustain it. And in order to sustain this kind of infrastructure, 
You have to have a tax base. You have to have an economic base where the resources of the many are pooled together for the benefit of all. And in impoverished regions, there's an insufficient stream of revenue from taxation to sustain public health, public health initiatives. So an alternative is give everybody drugs. I happen to like drugs a lot. Um, these are, for many reasons, um, the, the basis for this is a program, set of programs called Mass Drug Administration. Um, it was pioneered in parasites for the treatment of onchocerciasis and lymphatic filariasis. These are tissue-dwelling worms that live inside of people. They cause a lot of problems. We'll talk a bit more about that. And the way these work is that epidemiological surveys identify geographic areas of need based on the intensity of infection. And once you identify that kind of an area, pardon me, once or twice a year you go through, you dose everybody you can get a hold of. It's not driven by diagnostics, it's driven by population incidence. This requires very safe and highly effective drugs to have any hope of working. They have to be very safe because I'm treating people who don't need them, who aren't actually infected. So I can't have a risk of an adverse event that would uh, lead to the discontinuation of the program. When these started, oh, there was... Scientists by nature, I think, are optimists, especially people who study parasites. Um, this was going to solve all the problems. I guess that's what leads to lying on grant applications. Not sure. But in fact, it didn't. So here's just an example of some of the uh, Mass Drug Administration campaigns. On the far end of it, you can see their target date. We're not going to meet any of these. And, and there's a lot of reasons for that. None is on schedule. So the goal of these was to control these infections, to eliminate them as threats to public health, to allow these countries to focus their investments in health research on other kinds of problems, just to, to put these in the background, right? A lot of good has been achieved. So we've, we've really reduced transmission of a number of these parasites. Most importantly, the number of worms that a person harbors has been reduced, and that number is related to pathology. So by these programs, we have reduced the suffering of lots and lots of people, but we are not close, really, to getting rid of them. But it's important to know and remember that we've done a lot of good. One of the reasons we have is that the pharmaceutical industry developed a conscience. There's been a lot of research into where the conscience came from. Um, it started with Merck. So Merck um, discovered a drug called ivermectin, which is a wonderful drug for controlling an awful lot of parasites. And they realized it would be really good for tropical infections like onchocerciasis or river blindness and lymphatic filariasis or elephantiasis. And they began to donate the drug for free for use in those conditions. Over a billion tablets have been distributed already, which is pretty remarkable. Um, although you should realize they get a tax break. Uh, but, but, you know, forget about that. That's okay. And it's an open-ended commitment. 
They have agreed to continue this program till it's no longer necessary. GlaxoSmithKline, one billion tablets of albendazole, an antiparasitic drug per year, for soil-transmitted helminths, the worms that live in your gut, and for a, a, a parasite called, uh, or that causes a disease called lymphatic filariasis. That's a lot of tablets to donate. Johnson & Johnson, 200 million tablets of mebendazole donated a year for soil-transmitted helminths, ESI. They have guaranteed more than 2 billion tablets of a drug called diethylcarbamazine for lymphatic filariasis. And uh, the German Merck, 250 million tablets per year of praziquantel, a drug for an infection called schistosomiasis. These are impressive. These are very, very impressive um, donations. And they represent a change in the way the developed world addresses helminth infections. And these are some of the agents of change. So I want to single out, <coughs> this is a guy named P. Roy Vagelos, who was the head of Merck when they made the decision to donate ivermectin. He actually came to Africa and was overwhelmed by the reception. Um, in the middle is a guy named Jimmy Carter, um, an ex-US president who developed a vision, one of the good ones, in my opinion, um, who developed a vision for controlling certain parasitic infections. And among them, we'll talk, is a disease called guinea worm. And I think you all know the man at the top right of the slide, Sheikh Zed bin Sultan Al Nahyan. Jimmy Carter is a nice guy, but he was a peanut farmer. Didn't have a lot of money. So to implement these programs, you need money. And the person who stepped up was Sheikh Zed, and I think it's very appropriate, the 100th year of his birth, the, this year is the year to celebrate Sheikh Zed. That was a tremendous motivating donation. It continued. So he continued to support uh, efforts to eradicate or eliminate tropical diseases. But it allowed the Carter Center to address guinea worm. We'll talk about that shortly. I think that's what stimulated Bill and Melinda Gates to put an enormous amount of their fortune. I think it's about $50 billion into a fund to support research into tropical diseases, among other causes. That led to the development of many other uh, organizations, some of which, only some of which are listed here, which are devoted to the control of these kinds of infections. And Bill Gates would go to London every year and browbeat pharmaceutical companies. What are you going to do? How are you going to help us? And that led to a lot of these donations. So the industry has really embraced the need to cooperate with other funders to develop drugs for these diseases. All right, if we want to get rid of these things, let's look at history. What have we gotten rid of? Everybody knows smallpox is gone, except for those little bits hanging around laboratories, but don't worry about that, it's fine. Do you know the disease of the dead cows? Rinderpest. That has been eradicated. I mean, it's a remarkable achievement. A veterinary viral infection eradicated. Polio is down to a few, a few cases. These are all viral infections that can be prevented by vaccination. This is a really important part of the process. So far, so far, none of the diseases that are priorities for us have had a vaccine developed for them. 
This makes the job a lot harder. But there is a reason to hope. This is this infection from a worm called Dracunculus. It's a really ugly, I have to say, I tried to find beauty in all things. It's very hard to find beauty in a guinea worm. The females are this long. You live under your skin. When you get into the water, the female etches a hole in you and deposits larvae. The larvae are consumed by copepods, little invertebrates you can't even hardly see where they live for a while. When a person drinks that water, the copepod dies in the stomach, but the baby worm gets out and bingo, you have this problem. It's a very debilitating disease. The time the eradication program started, there were about three and a half million people with this infection throughout Africa. Now, we're down to 10, 15, 25. We don't know the number. They're in Chad, they're in Mali, South Sudan. Some of these places, very difficult to go, very challenging to do epidemiological surveys, right? But this is a disease on the verge of extinction. Jimmy Carter famously said, he's 93 years old, that he hopes the last guinea worm dies before he does. Might make it. How did we do it? This is another example where we didn't need drugs. This was a social program that identified community workers who would identify cases. So I can stop the transmission of the disease if I keep infected people from getting into the water. So I have community leaders who identify infected people They are sequestered from the water. They're given cool water to put their foot in or whatever. Until you can, and the way that you get rid of this worm is you wind it out on a stick. It takes a few days. You don't want to break it. It's it's not a nice thing. But we're almost rid of it. Provision of safe drinking water. So if you don't, the, 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 the invertebrates, the little intermediate hosts are in surface water. So if I have a well, or if I have a way to purify the water, I don't get the infection. We can kill those little invertebrates. The compound there is called temifos. It's pretty safe. You can spray it in water. It's not very selective, so all the things in there die except for the fish. Um, Health education, personal prophylaxis. The devices in the bottom right are drinking straws that filter out the little invertebrates. So I can put that into a contaminated lake and drink through it and not get infected. So if I educate people and distribute those, they can be manufactured locally, I block the infection. And the last case is certification. So a team will go in and look for evidence. Does anybody in this country have guinea worm? We've gotten rid of it in all but three countries. However, it wouldn't be a very good lecture if there weren't several howevers. Did, have we won? Have we won? We used to think most, it's important to know, I, I told you that there are heaps and heaps of parasites, right? But we humans as hosts actually are susceptible to relatively few. Our defenses are really, really good. 
And, and most host-parasite interactions are very specific. We used to think Dracunculus was human-specific, would only infect humans. So if we got rid of it in humans, we would win. However, I guess we ignored the fact that it can go into dogs. Um, the first alarm came in Chad in 2012, where we began to see dogs with worms coming out just like they would in a person. Uh, as far as we know, those are the same family of worms that can infect people. It's not a different subspecies. Looks like it's the same one. In 2016, more than 1,000 dogs in Chad were found to have this. 14 in Ethiopia, 11 in Mali. They tend to be regional. They're not spread that far. So we need to do a lot more work on this. Is this new? Has this always been the case? Do dogs contribute infections that people can get? We don't know that. Can we treat the waters where these dogs are found to kill all the, the little larvae? Maybe. Um, this drug that I mentioned, ivermectin, some people are trying to catch all the dogs and dose them with long-acting preparations of this drug to try to kill the parasite inside the dog. Um, but we don't know what this means for eradication. We don't know if we have to cure the infection in people and in dogs. But we're not going to give up. All right. What are the other obstacles to the use of drugs to get rid of these infections? There's always a risk of drug resistance. I'm going to talk about that. The way these programs work, they demand a one-dose regimen. So I go into a village, I go into a school, everybody gets one dose, I go away for six months or a year, right? That's a pretty high bar to set, a one-dose cure for all the different worms that might be in people. Um, we don't really know that much about how these infectious stages live in the environment. Our, our understanding is, is pretty limited. We'll talk about parasites that live in tissues, these filarids. The adults can live a long time, and we don't have a drug that can safely kill them. So control programs have to last a long time. We tend not to invest in basic research in areas like this. So there's a lot we don't know about the drugs that we give to a billion people. We just don't. If we knew more about how they worked, we might be able to use them better. And then there are socioeconomic factors. What happens if the people who donate the drugs no longer do? Um, refugees. We may clean the infection out of a place, and a migratory population comes in. What then? And then how can we build and sustain infrastructure that will eliminate the need for drugs? So the first problem, the drugs that we use to treat Gastrointestinal parasites in people are called benzimidazoles. There are two common ones that we use in people, uh, mebendazole and albendazole. These have been used in veterinary medicine or drugs like this for decades. One of the lessons that we learned in veterinary medicine is that we select for resistance very, very rapidly. So for many, many years, the distribution of these drugs was limited, right? 
these were not high-priority infections. And so the exposure of the worms to the drugs was, was pretty low. We didn't really worry about resistance. But now we're ramping this up. These drugs have a well-known mechanism of action. There's a protein skeleton in your cells, in your body. It's called tubulin. And these drugs prevent the assembly of that. Those two drugs work about 10 times better on worms than they do on people. So they're pretty safe to use. And for, they've been reliable for a long time. Will they continue to be is the question. This conference is kind of about C. elegans as a model. And it's important to know, we understood the mechanism of action, how these drugs work, a long time ago. But work in this nematode, free-living, soil-dwelling nematode, showed that it was mutations in a gene encoding this beta-tubulin protein that confer resistance to the drug. This was elegantly supported by work some time ago where this free-living worm was made into sort of a quasi-parasite by putting in parasite tubulin genes from resistant and sensitive organisms and showing that that phenotype was due to the particular beta-tubulin uh, gene that was added. So C. elegans made a huge contribution. When we studied parasites, this is an amino acid sequence or part of it, of the tubulin gene, we can separate sensitive and resistant strains the most important residue is really this position 200. F stands for the amino acid phenylalanine, and this confers sensitivity to the drugs. Y is tyrosine, and that confers resistance. That's the one that humans have. So what worms tend to do is become more like a person, and in so doing, they resist the drug. So we find these changes in amino acids through every parasite nematode that has become resistant. One can predict this. The question is, will this happen as we ramp up exposure? And my dear friend, Aistu Daiwara, lit the alarm fire because her work, she's a graduate of the Institute of Parasitology, by the way, um, showed that whipworms Trichuris, trichura, 600 million human infections already have these mutations. And whipworms are the most difficult species to get with the benzimidazoles. So we know this is a possibility. We know this is a possibility. We understand from veterinary medicine what happens. The more, the more pressure you put on a population, the more you're going to select for resistance. Now we're donating hundreds of millions of doses of drugs. We will be treating more and more people. What percentage of the worm population is exposed? This is a concept called refugia. So it allows sensitive worms to exist and delays the spread of resistance. The more we treat, the lower the refugia. So there's, these two factors are really worrisome. Another one is, how long does the environment remain contaminated? So these are soil-transmitted infections. I get them when sewage, human waste, has contaminated an area, and I acquire orally the infectious stage. How long does that last? We don't know. And 
we also know that suboptimal dosing. So there is a real problem in many parts of the world with counterfeit drugs, which have low bioavailability or low uh, 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 proportion of the drug in the tablet, but also the single dose, single dose paradigm contributes to this suboptimal dosing. And I think these are, are going to have a factor to play. What I mean by suboptimal dosing, these are estimates of efficacy. It's called the egg reduction rate. We measure the eggs that come out in people's feces as an index of efficacy. Ascaris, the big worm, is very sensitive to these drugs. So a single dose is, is really going to be pretty good. It's when we get to whipworms and hookworms. These are just a series of studies that have been reported. The efficacy is variable. Sometimes it's really good, sometimes not very good at all. When it's not very good at all, there's a risk of selecting for resistance. We have made a programmatic decision. We can only give one dose. I don't, I've argued about this with people who are at pay grades much higher than I am. Why don't we trust mothers to give their kid one pill a day for three days? They tell me it's not possible. If I did that, my cure rates would be much higher and I would have much less risk of breakthrough infections. But they say compliance won't help. The other bit is we'd have to go back to the drug companies and ask them for three times the supply. So there is a, a need, definitely, to find and develop better drugs that will kill all the worms one dose. I'm glad my career in that respect is over. <laughs> That's a very, very high bar to ask. Persistence of environmental stages. So on the left is Ascaris. In the middle is a hookworm. And on the right is a whipworm. The, the, the stage that you get. So for Ascaris and Trichuris, the whipworm, it's called an embryonated egg. This egg is in the environment. It has a little larvae in it. When you swallow that, the larvae comes out of the egg into you. Hookworms are a bit different. They have an L3 larvae in the environment that penetrates your skin and then gets into your body that way. So walking barefoot is a good way to get infected. The larvae, the filariform larvae, can't last that long in the soil. Um, but our estimate of how long this can be is imprecise. So in this table, various estimates of the duration of these infectious stages, once they've become embryonated eggs in particular, but those are, those are poor estimates. Um, people have not done systematic analyses of environments to know how long they can really last. There are estimates of 10 years for unembryonated eggs. 10 years. What does this mean? It means if the environment is contaminated and I treat everybody and cure their infections, for 10 years, they are at risk of becoming reinfected if the environment remains the same. That really complicates eradication. That really complicates eradication. Yet, we have not done local surveys to tell us how long these things survive. So this is an area of research that has not been approached. So the soil transmitted helminths are at risk. 
We need better tools. We need better diagnostics. We need a better understanding of the ecology of those infections. The tissue dwellers, the filariases, they cause a disease called river blindness, which is the subject of, of mass drug administration, and lymphatic filariases. The problem is that we don't have a drug that kills the adults safely. So we go back year after year with a drug that kills their babies. This helps patients, it reduces transmission, doesn't get rid of the infection. Now, when there's a, a big load in a community, when a lot of people have the infection, that makes sense. But what happens as the end game comes closer? The number of infections are fewer and fewer. We identify somebody in the village, are we gonna go back 10 years to that village to treat two people? This is a real question. And if we do that, we're gonna need a different strategy, not mass drug administration where we treat everybody, but it's called test and treat, where we actually do diagnosis before administering the drug. We're not there yet, right? If we did have, now, there recently, kind of a breakthrough may have happened. This is pretty exciting. The disease called elephantiasis has about 120 million infected people. Very severe long-term pathology. The drugs that are used are ivermectin plus albendazole or diethylcarbamazine plus albendazole. And we, we can't really use diethylcarbamazine where onchocerciasis exists because the side effects can be very severe. However, for lymphatic filariasis, it's been reported if I combine all three drugs, one dose kills the adults. It has to be confirmed. Um, if that's true, it's a game changer because I can go into a place, treat everybody with the three drug combination, infection's gone. These, for the most part, are infections of people only. So if I clear the people, I win. Um, but it's not clear to me that the triple drug combination is safe for use in onchocerciasis areas. If I give a person with onchocerciasis ethylcarbamazine, I can blind that person. That's a big problem. So controlling the distribution of the drug becomes very, very important. I think we're going to need a new drug for onchocerciasis that can kill the adults. We don't know so much. If I give a dose of ivermectin to a person with lymphatic filariasis or river blindness, for nine months, they stop making babies, the worms. It doesn't kill them. They just have like this permanent birth control. It's like an implant. I have no idea how that happens. The drug has left the body in two days. But eight months later, it's still having an effect. I don't understand that. Pure luck that that happened. Ivermectin would be a wonderful drug, but there's an important species of hookworms, the cater, which are not really affected by it. Very close cousins, ankylostoma, very common parasites, very susceptible. What's the difference? Why, is it, is it fixable? Can hookworms ever be approached with ivermectin? In pharmacology, there's a concept called pharmacokinetic pharmacodynamic profile. Does the drug get to where it needs to be long enough to accomplish its effect? If we understand that, we can design regimens and formulations to deliver the drug 
where it needs to be for as long as it needs to be. Unfortunately, for soil-transmitted helmets in the gut, can't tell you what that is. So it's very difficult to model it. Praziquantel is our only weapon against schistosomiasis. It's the only drug that we use, really. Don't know how it works. If I don't know how it works, I don't really know what the risk of resistance development is. If resistance was to develop to praziquantel, we've got nothing to back it up. So these are big questions. Not much research is devoted to them. Socioeconomic challenges. Who knows? I know there was a big change in the tax law in the United States. Not sure, not sure that favored donations of drugs for tropical diseases. Kind of doubt it, but you never know. Um, what if a company decides not to do it anymore? So countries don't pay for these things now, right? They're given. That's, that's a good and a bad thing, right? It's a great thing because it allows resource-limited countries to invest in worm control when if they had to buy the drugs, they might not have the wherewithal to do that. On the other hand, it means if I come up with a new drug, it has to be a heck of a lot better than the free drug if I'm going to get somebody to pay for it. Um, refugees. We know of cases in onchocerciasis was brought to the New World in South America, particularly in Mexico. It's been eradicated almost everywhere in, 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 the, new, in the Americas. But we know of a case in the Amazon where one person came into an area with onchocerciasis. Beautiful, these are spread by black flies, the little biting simulian black flies. Happened to be a place with a wonderful vector outbreak, one person. So if I move people around who have these parasites into clean areas, they're coming back. How do we control that? I don't know. And then this is the biggest problem of all. As long as we have regions that have insufficient resources to build and maintain sanitation facilities, water, pure water facilities, it's going to be a very, very tough battle. We have not yet figured out the investment strategy that will boost local economies. When will we win? If the triple drug combination works, I think we could do very close to eradication of lymphatic filariasis by 2025. I think there will be a huge push to that. I'm not sure we can use that for onchocerciasis regions. Um, Latest estimates are 2039. I think that we might finally control that infection. It was going to be 2015. It was going to be 2010. I think if we could get a new drug to kill the adults, that would really help. For schistosomiasis, we're not going to win that battle. There are hundreds of millions of people infected. Praziquantel has really reduced the morbidity and the mortality due to schistosomiasis. I don't think in and of itself it can eradicate it um, unless we can get WASH programs established for safe water. The same thing is true with soil-transmitted helmets. I think with drugs alone, it's not going to happen in, I could say in my lifetime, but that could be a year, who knows? So um, it's, it's really challenging with the tools that we have now. Okay, now I'm gonna switch I spent most of my life trying to kill worms. 
I consider that a noble cause. Um, clearly, I didn't win that one. But as I studied these things, we, we became a little bit more interested in their biology. Are worms only bad? Depends on if you have them, I guess. But this thinking we heard earlier today about the hygiene hypothesis. These are two maps. There are increasingly common autoimmune diseases in rich nations. These are Crohn's disease, arthritis, probably type 2 uh, uh, diabetes, type 1 diabetes, inflammatory bowel disease, asthma, uh, MS to some extent, multiple sclerosis. The incidence of these is climbing. They're unprecedented. I mean, when I was a boy, I never heard of anyone with a peanut allergy. Now, apparently, you can't bring peanut butter to school anymore. I don't know. If you look where the worms are, the worms are places where we really don't have autoimmune diseases. And where we have autoimmune diseases, we don't have worms. So this is a correlation. It's not a causation. But it suggests that maybe we're just too clean. This is just an example in Europe of the time-dependent rise in these conditions. It's not because we diagnose them better. They really are increasing. I got interested in this because certain physicians were giving people worms. And they found really interesting results. These are just a few of the graphs that people, particularly with colitis, experienced, many of them, tremendous benefit from having worms. I guess maybe that makes sense. Worms exist with us. They live with us for a long time. They evolved with us. They manipulate us to provide them safe haven, right? They want a long, prosperous life. Live long and prosper. So um, they have figured out a way to negotiate a happy place inside of us. They don't want us to get all excited and get rid of them. They figured out a way to make us peaceful and serene. Don't go to sleep. In, in, an, immune, in an immune context, right? So giving people worms seemed to help them. Now, for a long time, people have understood that worms and, and people exchange chemical messages as part of the effort to establish or get rid of an infection. Most of the time, we win. Infection doesn't succeed for most parasites. The ones that succeed know how to talk to us. They know how to calm us down. Right? Um, these were not systematic efforts, right? They were driven by functional assays. We did learn some things, but for the most part, it's remained a bit of a mystery. We have real problems in resolving these issues. One is that you can't really manipulate parasites genetically. They're very difficult systems to work with. So if I think making a particular protein is important, for a parasite to succeed, don't have a good way to knock that out, to test that hypothesis. Undoubtedly, this is a multi-layered effect. It's not one chemical acting on one cell type. It's going to be a whole milieu. And it's hard to integrate those effects. 
we started by looking just at proteins. What proteins do parasitic nematodes secrete? And these are fun experiments to do because they're really easy. You just put them in a, in a Petri dish with some medium, and then you collect them, and you send the stuff off to somebody who tells you what's in it. I love that kind of science. Um, <clears throat> we and other people have done a lot of this. Um, parasites are unpleasant creatures, not just because of what they do, but because they require hosts. We don't know how to maintain these things in culture. So once I take them out of their happy house and I put them in a Petri dish, maybe they're not happy. Does a culture represent the parasite inside a person? Don't know that. We, we actually don't know that. So the work <clears throat> could be a bit speculative. The problem that we had was that there are hundreds of these things, hundreds and hundreds of these secreted proteins. They vary by all kinds of factors. To study each one to see what it does, very, very difficult. We wanted to try to find ways to prioritize them for functional testing. And we thought, well, what if we looked at parasites that all live in the gut or all live in tissues, things like that? Would that help us? No, it didn't help us at all. I was very disappointed in the lack of power of bioinformatics. I'm winking here, I'm winking. So <clears throat> we decided to go to the therapeutic model. This is a whipworm called Trichurus suis. Its host is the pig. It used to be fairly, fairly uh, common, not so much anymore um, in, in pigs. The reason that it was used for therapy was that it doesn't succeed in people. It lives in the intestinal tract for a couple of months, three months, doesn't really make it to where it's producing eggs. So the infected person really can't pass that infection along to anybody else. And after a few months, humans get rid of it. Um, it's closely related to the human whipworm and to, to mouse whipworms. It has therapeutic relevance. People that got this loved it. The problem is molecules are better than worms. We don't know if I give you a dose of whipworms, I don't know how many take. I don't know how long they last. So if we understood the language that the whipworm uses, we could be a much, have a much clearer path to therapy than trying to give worms. Oh, 500 proteins in the excretory profile. Way too many to test. So we had to result to old-fashioned. Somebody, uh, Dick Davis called it bucket biochemistry. It's, it's purification by fractionation. It's the kind of stuff we used to do back in the old days. And we, we, we had a bioassay for purified proteins, which is the production of IL-10 by bone marrow macrophages. If you ask me a question about immunology, I will faint. I don't know anything about immunology. I trust the people that do this. And what we see is that different fractions have bioactivity. And we have done a lot of work on this with bioassay-guided fractionation, followed by protein identification technology. <coughs> Pardon me. We've looked at Trichurus suis as well as a model parasite called Oligmosomoides polygyrus, which grows in rodents and is easy to do in the laboratory. Um, 
we've gotten bioactive proteins out of this. Um, two of those are very good at suppressing inflammatory profiles of dendritic cells and macrophages. Is that physiologically relevant? I can't tell you because I can't knock them out. One of the caveats in this work, what if the phenotype is due to more than one protein? And post-translational modification. So when proteins are made, cells may stick sugars on them, all kinds of other molecules that modify their function, but that we can't really easily reproduce in the laboratory, in, uh, in recombinant technology. But we're on the verge of trying to understand this. What about metabolites? And we had a very nice presentation today on metabolites, small molecules that are produced by nematodes that affect host, cell func host functions. We've known for decades that parasites produce molecules, short-chain, unusual branch-chain fatty acids, eicosanoids of various sorts, your favorite molecules, right? Scaricides. But we lack systematic surveys. So that was another thing that we tried to do with Trichuris. And this is Trichuris suis, different life stages, different modes of looking for the chemicals that they produce. And we found, you know, several hundred, several hundred unique signatures. Now, you would say there's probably a 1,000 there. The sensitivity is always an issue. But this is a lot of stuff to make. Now, this is in culture. We think it's sterile, but we don't know that for sure. And we don't know if the parasite in culture is as happy as the parasite in the colon of a pig. When we look at these, <clears throat> a particular set of fractions is associated with inducing what's called a regulatory phenotype in cells. So if we take these cells and expose them to these fractions and put them back into animal models of colitis, they suppress the phenotype. So these molecules change the way the cells behave. What are they? Um, and how do they do this? We There's a, a kinase, an enzyme that phosphorylates things called SICK. It's spleen tyrosine kinase, and I don't know why it's spleen, but I guess that's where they found it first. We don't do a good job of naming things. I will say that. It has a real role to play in coordinating immune responses. When we expose, when we look at infection with this model nematode, we see a huge effect on the expression of this gene. So this is the messenger RNA. The protein level follows. Within a few hours, we knock this down remarkably. We don't knock down other kinases, just this one. We see the same thing with a lectin. And a lectin is a protein that recognizes sugars or other signals. In particular, this is only a few of these are affected by exposure to the parasite. What's important is that the products that they secrete do the same thing in culture. And they do it pretty profoundly, and they do it pretty fast, two hours. This is a very rapid effect. What's exciting is that we have a semi-purified molecule. We're not very good at chemistry. 
Isn't, didn't you hate chemistry growing up? No, no offense. Um, one of the difficulties in metabolomics is you get a mass signature, but it doesn't tell you the structure, right? So we've had to purify this. We've got about a microgram, and we're trying to get structural identification done, but that does the same thing. So we have a small molecule that potently and rapidly knocks down the expression of sick and clack. How does it do that? I don't have any idea. Um, is it functionally important? I think so. These cells will transfer a regulatory phenotype to mouse models of colitis. But we already saw that other molecules do the same thing. So metabolites, proteins. A third one, when we looked at the proteins that were coming out of nematodes, one of the things we realized is that there was a family, a set of about 20, and it seemed like every nematode produced. And they didn't make any sense. They didn't make any functional sense. The one thing that they did was identify the presence of little tiny vesicles, little tiny bubbles that parasites release into the host. These are called exosomes. So exosomes are, are little membrane-bound orbs, little spheres that contain, that contain proteins and a variety of ribonucleic acids, RNAs, especially of interest are microRNAs. We, we have begun to appreciate these. We know that helminths secrete all kinds of stuff. This chemical language is very complex. But one of the things that we're only now appreciating is that they secrete microRNAs and other non-coding RNAs. And what these are, microRNAs, they're small, little non-coding RNAs, but they regulate gene expression all over biology. All eukaryotes have these things. Um, I can detect them in mammalian biofluids. They're used in diagnostics now. Um, in animals, they have tissue and development stage specificity, and they, they reflect disease status. So these are a very hot area of interest. Our own microRNAs affect how our cells make proteins. They do that because they bind to other RNAs. They have a complementary region that binds, and when they do, they destabilize that messenger RNA, and it leads to a loss of protein, particular proteins. One microRNA can influence lots of, lots of these things. And it turns out that nematodes make and release these things. These are just a few surveys of parasite-derived microRNAs in patient blood. Some of them are in animals, some of them are in humans, but we have evidence from a variety of laboratories that parasites release these things into the host. So these things are floating around. Do they have an effect? Well, recently, yes, it was shown that they, they do. This is work from Amy Buck and Rick Mazels. Again, our little parasite friend, Oligmosomoides, secretes microRNAs into the host, which alters host immune functions. So there's now proof that parasites use these chemical signals also to change their environment, to make it a happy place for them, a safe place where they can just raise their children and not worry, right? So I think we now have another layer 
of how parasites influence us, helminth parasites, we haven't really approached this functionally yet. Um, there's an awful lot we don't know about these things. Research is going on. We need more people to do more research on this language of the host-parasite interface. The more we understand about how parasites talk to us, the better able we'll be to control them. This is a lesson in warfare from centuries ago, uh, millennia ago. If you understand the enemy, you have a much better chance of winning the battle. So, my last statement, I had to get to this age to realize life is more complex than it used to be. Let's just kill them all. One of the, by the way, one of the benefits of being a parasitologist, you can be as violent as you like to invertebrates and nobody cares. There, there is actually, I think it's a false website to preserve dracunculus. You know, do we have the right to eradicate a species? Did you ever see the movie Aliens? Yes, we, we have that right. So, worms are bad. I think we can all agree. But can we learn something from them before we say goodbye? I, I hope so. Um, the people on this slide are the ones that have contributed over the years. Um, Macadonk is here with Joe Urban's lab. Mary Stevenson, uh, Joel Weinstock, and Armando Jardim, we've been working on the Trachiris situation for some time. Uh, Charles McKenzie and Stephen Silber and Joseph Arkreisi and I have worked for a long time on trying to understand possibilities for eradication and elimination. Um, the beautiful Institute of Parasitology in the month of summer. <laughs> Just saying. And I, I, too, I don't know if you're in that picture or not. It's, it's a fairly old picture. I don't update things. Um, and I'm very grateful that I had the chance to move from industry back to academia, and it was through the Canada Research Chairs program, which brought people like me uh, with no evidence that I could ever successfully get a grant to Canada. So thank you very much for your attention. Shukran Jazeelin. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu/institute.